Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chanel Mayer. The Adventure Science Podcast brings together adventurers, explorers, and scientists to discuss some of the most pressing topics facing the planet we live on today. And we hope you're going to enjoy today's podcast. We're bringing in uh, world-renowned photographer, nature photographer, Tom Fitz. Tom and Chanel have a long-standing relationship. Uh, he's one of her favorite people. And personally, I'm really excited to learn more about what he does in the field. But uh, I think there's going to be some great war stories uh, that Tom and Chanel share. Uh, before we dive into it, though, I'd like to thank our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Sunto, Stoked Oats, Canada Satellite, Earthcast, and Smith Optics. Chanel, Tell us more about uh, Tom's incredible resume. Yeah, uh, so Tom has a long list of accolades. He's an Emmy award-winning uh, nature photographer and cinematographer. He's shot for programs such as Planet Earth, Blue Planet, and Racing Extinction, which I'm really excited about. And he's also the founder of Schoolyard Films, a nonprofit which creates educational natural history content. That sounds awesome. And before we dive into it and welcome Tom to the show, Chanel, how do you guys know each other? So Tom and I met uh, each other on a wild dolphin project uh, that we were on, what was that, Tom, maybe two years ago? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we were on the RV Stanella together in the Bahamas for, I think, about 12, 13 days and just had a wonderful time. He's an awesome person. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess we kind of let the cat out of the bag and introduced you before we introduced you. But uh, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here and uh, can't wait to pick your brain and get some of these uh, great stories that you've uh, collected over the years. Well, great. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, to be here with you both. Awesome. Let's let's dive into uh, the basics here and just we always like to f to find out how people get started in this world of uh, adventure and, you know, turn it into a career. How did it get started for you? You know, it got started a long time ago in the early 80s when I was in college. Uh, I was I was a volunteer for four long years on a on a dolphin language acquisition research program. And and I loved the research and thought at the time that I wanted to be be a scientist and and uh, and then one day a film crew came in from an old show on ABC um, called Those Amazing Animals and they came in to do a short piece on what we were doing and uh, in the middle of the day sort of during lunch break I sat down on the side of the tank with their cameraman uh, and just started chatting about you know what he does and all the light bulbs flashed off in my in my little brain, and I, I thought, holy smokes, this is what I want to be doing. And I, I realized that, you know, I could, I could travel the world. I could get out of working. Uh, I was kind of disenchanted with working with captive animals by that time. And I thought, okay, I can work with, you know, in the wild, with wild and free animals. Um, I can work with scientists, but not be the scientist, and um, and make a make a nice living at it at the same time. And so it really started from that one lunch conversation, sitting uh, on the side of a tank at Marine World in uh, in the Bay Area of California. So Tom, I can't wait to dive in and talk more about your career 
as a world-renowned photographer and cinematographer, but you brought up um, being next to a tank. And I remember uh, when we were on the Wild Dolphin Project, you talked a bit about working with John Lilly. And is that what you're referring to, that time in your life? Yeah, it sure is. I, I spent four years working for for John, and he, uh, well, as you know, he was kind of a zany guy. He, I think he, he in a way, started uh, the whole craze, um, you know, with dolphins and whales and their intelligence and language. And so, and, let me let me interrupt you as a as a non uh-huh. uh, ocean person, uh, more of a landlubber. Who is John Lilly, and and, and what exactly was he doing? How, how, why were you working with him? Well, he uh, he was a scientist who he was uh, a neuroscientist, and, and in the late fifties, he um, he had done some work on dolphin brains, uh, and he started thinking that they are really really intelligent. And he set up a house in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, and he he kind of reconfigured all the furniture and all the uh, all the plumbing, and he he set it up so that on two floors there was about three feet of water, and he had a number of dolphins that they put in there with a, a woman named Margaret Howe, and it was her job at the time to teach them to mimic English uh, through their blowholes, which was not an easy thing to do, and uh, they had some success, and I think were quite excited by it, but you know they came to the conclusion that to ask a dolphin to to mimic English through the blowhole is a rather challenging thing. So then it was shelved uh, for a couple of decades. And in the very late 70s, they started up when computer technology had kind of marched along. And and um, so by the time I got there in 1980, they had a setup uh, with two dolphins at Marine World, two tanks uh, that were joined. And we had phones in and speakers in the water so we could hear uh, every sound that the dolphins were making, and it was their sounds are quite high frequency, and we can hear naturally and are beyond our hearing range. So we had a, a way to shift the frequencies down, so we really could hear everything. Uh, and we began teaching them sort of a, a dolphin whistle uh, vocabulary that we created, but the sounds were very similar to whistles that dolphins, you know, make naturally. Uh, and we were teaching them to mimic those sounds and trying to build up, you know, a rudimentary language. So uh, that's what he was all about. Uh, and he he's a character. He was a character. He's passed away now. Um, at the time I met him, he was in his late 60s, and he had quite a dolphin following. He also did a lot of experimentation with psychedelic drugs, and he had a whole following uh, on that side of things too. And and to be honest, eventually those two merged, and that didn't do well for credibility yeah. and funding. And so uh, that project finally ended in 1985. And he, but he was a, a just a fascinating character. I, you know, am, am still delighted that I had a chance to have four years with him. Incredibly, incredibly bright guy. Uh, and um, anyway, that's kind of where I got my start. And so, of course, my first film as a young, you know, camera starting off, I knew dolphins. And so 
I, I had uh, dolphin shoots um, that I was able to land to get started, and then it, it went from there. That's excellent. So, I mean, those, those early years working with the dolphins in the tank, uh, how do you think captivity would have affected, uh, you know, their ability to learn and um, interact with you guys versus wild dolphins that you and Chanel have since worked on together and uh, spent some time studying? Well, without a doubt, you know, my preference is to work in, in the wild uh, with wild dolphins. Um, that said, there are certain things that you can do with captive captive dolphins um, that are a lot harder to do in the ocean. And I'm not at all saying, you know, this is the way I think everybody should go in that line of work. But um, at the time, we certainly, you know, we had their undivided attention. Um, they, were, they weren't going to go anywhere else. Uh, um, and so I think maybe we, we had more focus than one might have had if, you know, if we tried to do it in, in the ocean. Um, so I suppose that was great, but you know, really, I, I just think it's the wrong thing to do. Um, and, and so, uh, I, you know, personally, I wanted to get out of that world and, and work with, you know, wild free Three dolphins who, if they did want to come by uh, and interact with this, well, that was their choice, which is the way it should be. Right. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, captive dolphins, it's certainly easier. You don't have to spend so much time tracking them down. But, um, I mean, that certainly has an impact on their reactions, their psychology, and, it, you know, they're not working with you on their own free will. So that certainly has negative impacts as well. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was, I was very, you know, it's funny. I mean, over the years I have once in a very, I stayed away from the whole ocean area game after that. Uh, but then found that, you know, once in a while I, I came back in and, uh, for one reason or another, and, um, you know, my last job, I shot interviews at SeaWorld, um, a couple of years ago. And, and anyway, it's really political. It's, it's kind of a, uh, a strange world, and and yes, they do some good things, but uh, you know, ultimately, I just think those animals, those big, big, um, you know, the pilot whales and the dolphins and the killer whales, uh, I just don't think that's where they should be. So, yeah, uh, I couldn't uh, agree more. We can do better. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to hear, you know, post John Lilly, what was next on your path? So many people want to become photographers. You're now an Emmy Award-winning cinematographer, and you get to travel the world and get paid to adventure uh, in amazing places with the most incredible animals. So um, I'd love to hear more about your path and how you got here. Sure. Well, it was, um, you know, I made the decision to, to get into this line of work and then scratched my head because I didn't have a clue how to do it. And and um, the first years were very lean, I will say. Um, and honestly, if I hadn't really had some good support from my family, um, I, I wouldn't have been able to get to get this work going. Um, my very first job was for TV Globo in Brazil, and it was uh, working on a really spectacular island off the coast of the northeast corner of Brazil, where each morning about 500 spinner dolphins come into a bay. Uh, and wow. they kind of hang out and rest and socialize. And it's quite a spectacular place. And then they, at night they go off and, and feed in deeper water. Um, and so I, I, uh, <laughs> I had a job there for two months. 
and I managed to coerce uh, two other uh, guys, one of whom was my older brother, Billy, and a sound man, uh, Richard Ferraro, uh, from the uh, Washington, uh, from the sort of Friday Harbor, San Juan Island area, uh, who was a killer whale researcher. And we went down and we worked for two months for free. They, they covered our expenses, but nobody got a salary. And I was absolutely tickled to be working on my first, you know, TV program. And, and so that was our start. Uh, it was a bit of a fiasco at the end of the day. Um, you know, they, their audience was 40 million people. I mean, I, I had such a tough time wrapping my wow. head around, around that, that, That's you know, I was seeing it. It's a lot of eyeballs, but um, it was a fiasco because we went off uh, from this little island to an even smaller island. And to make a very long story short, which I don't think we should probably get into all the details here because it'll <laughs> take up, you know, an entire hour. But we kind of got lost at sea. We we uh, we didn't have enough food and water uh, for the crew of 14 of us. And we had a huge SOS written on the beach by the end of our stay. And there was this wild air sea rescue by the Navy, the Brazilian Navy. And, and, wow. uh, and, you know, we all had open sores, staph infection sort of up and down our bodies. And, oh, man. and, uh, and so it was fairly, you know, gruesome, but at the same time, I was just so thrilled to be, to be working in the water uh, and learning uh, how to be an underwater cameraman, and uh, I was I was pretty darn happy uh, in spite of all the uh, the challenges that we were facing. That's for sure. Yeah, but but, but uh, Tom, did you get the shots? That's that's I the important th- I question. I think we did. I think we did. Because <laughs> you're shooting on, you're shooting on film back then. It's a, it's a different game. You know, it was indeed. It was a very different game. Uh, equipment has changed so much over over the years that I, that I've been at this, and uh, so anyway, yeah, that was my my kind of my lowly beginning, and and um, and you know, I I I was living in Santa Barbara at the time, and and uh, between you know nature shoots, and there there were long times in between them, you know, I struggled along trying to find any kind of work with my camera, and you know, I was doing hair commercials and and these really low budget you know car car pieces and things that I don't really you know aspire to do much of but they were paying the bills and you know the equipment is always expensive and so you do it what you have to do to pay off the gear I'd love to and, see one of uh, those sometime soon by the way <laughs> I'll have to <laughs> dig, dig through the cobweb um, but anyway, it was fun. And then finally in 1994, I, I got my first, my first job with the BBC and, and, uh, it was kind of a trial job. They were very frank and said, you know, you've never worked for us and, and, um, we're going to give you a 10 day shoot on a film that is, is really pretty much already shot. So if you screw up, it's not going to hurt us too much. And so have a go at it. But if you do well, you know, they said there's there's a lot of work that that we have uh, to dole out, and so I did the ten day shoot, and it did work out. And then the next year, they gave me a hundred days to shoot my own film uh, in the Bahamas, and this was on the Stanella, the same boat um, Stanella where we where we met. And, and um, so I had a full season to make a, a dolphin behavior film, and uh, that was kind of my 
my start at what I consider to be really pretty high quality programs. I think I think the BBC makes uh, the best films of this genre. Um, mm-hmm. And even though I'm American and, you know, live here in the U.S. and should be doing more work for the American companies, um, I think the quality of what the BBC does is, is, really, is really top. So I'm pleased to have done a lot of work with them over the years. So are you, are you known to them, or at least were you at that time, as the guy to go to for capturing dolphin footage? You know, I think, I guess, yes. Um, I think everybody kind of gets pigeonholed, although you, you, uh, struggle not to, but anyway, I, I became, I think, you know, my name would, would definitely come up when people were looking for a cameraman on a whale or, or a dolphin film and, you know, what the heck that's, they're fascinating animals. And so that's not a bad place to be pigeonholed. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I do love the variety of the work and the variety of the stories. And, and so that's kind of how I started, but, um, you know, it's become a much broader, um, I don't know, how do you put it? Um, the, the kind of stories that I shoot now, I still get some whale and dolphin shoots, but, um, it's a much broader range of, of stories. At what point did you feel like you had made it in the field? Well, I guess um, I guess when I started really getting busy with the BBC, and and so another year or two after that that first shoot, I guess in 1997, uh, at the very beginning of the Blue Planet series, which was just tremendous fun uh, to work on, and and um, I think I did I don't know close to 200 days of of camera work on it. Um, wow, that's so huge. I, uh, yeah, I was, was finally really, really busy, and with other clients too, and and they were good programs, and and um, and uh, the travel was spectacular, and so that's that's kind of when I, uh, you know, I settled really settled into this this work, and you know, we have three kids, and our kids have have grown up with me leaving for you know two three weeks at a time, um, and so you know, on on one hand, that might you, know, you might consider that's tough on the kids and on the family. Uh, on the other hand, the, the home time is, is pretty spectacular. So I might go away for some weeks, but when I come home, I'm really truly home in a way that I think a lot of dads, you know, maybe aren't who are, who are doing the nine to five. And, and, uh, so anyway, you know, you make it work and, and that's the way our kids have, have grown up. You know, that's, that's interesting that you talk about family because that was one of the questions, uh, that I had in my mind. Um, you know, having done three seasons of, uh, my TV show Boundless with, uh, my crew, you know, you become very close, but we were more or less, uh, without kids at the time. Our producer, Stephen Bray, ended up having the first baby, uh, as we were nearing the end of season three. But, you know, it's, the travel is draining the uh the racing and the exploring is is exhausting as well so you know coming home from those uh projects you really are uh just very focused at being present uh kind of forgetting about that work for a little bit and enjoying uh your your home life and i do think it gives you a greater appreciation so i guess my question to you would be you know how did you learn to I guess, balance it all once you got into it and realize that, you know, the travel is challenging. Having a family is wonderful. 
but it's also challenged. So you want to do both. You'll, you'll never hit the happy medium properly, right, but right. Ha, ha, what are your techniques for doing that? And did you have any kind of rules that govern that for you? Well, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I'm sure it's different for every, you know, every family, but we found, my wife and I found that, that when I was away, it was, it was, a mis- if we had, you know, phone service and if we could talk from, you know, a hotel home, uh, or wherever I was, um, that, we actually did better uh, not trying to, you know, check in all the time. Um, and, you know, you can kind of overdo it. And I think you can miss people, you know, more and more if, 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 uh, if you're doing that. And so I guess maybe we, it's not that we set up some rules, but we just fell into a pattern of, of uh, you know, doing more writing uh, to each other uh, and, you know, maybe having a weekly phone call. But I think that certainly worked well for us. It's funny. The hardest time for me on these shoots is not being away. When kids were young, I would find that uh, the hardest time for me was my first day home. And I would, you know, like kind of an observer uh, to the family rather than being in the family. And, And it only lasted that first day. But that's when I could see the subtle, the little subtle things that I was missing out on uh, and not quite getting that, you know, everybody at home, they'd been in their own routine. And, and uh, for me, that was, that was much more difficult to feel, you know, out of the loop than I had been while I really truly was out of the loop, you know, on location somewhere. So uh, anyway, that, that first day would always be the most challenging for me. And then we'd all fall into uh, you know, the, the normal routines and it was great. Uh, that was my experience of it though. Interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, that is interesting. I know your kids are uh, really important to you. Uh, what advice do you have for parents who want to introduce adventure, exploration and conservation to their kids? Well, wow. That's, that's a big one. Um, I would yeah, don't say, don't don't screw up here because uh, parents are listening, Tom. <laughs> yeah, big sure. question for you. Surprise. Well, I, I would say that for many families, traditional school for the kids is a great thing, and that's fine. Um, but there are alternatives, and uh, you know, if you're adventurous, I think that parents could be adventurous as well with trying out. There's a whole variety of ways to homeschool kids. Uh, and to, you know, to take them on, on your travels and, and kids can learn so much at times, so much more by traveling than they might be getting in, you know, in the classroom that, well, maybe they're into, or maybe they're a little bit bored with, but, uh, I guess my advice would be, uh, to, to explore, you know, to explore those things with schooling, because some can consider that school just, you know, has to hold you down and and keep you in one place and and uh we've homeschooled our three kids off and on for a bunch of years and um i i it's it's great and and you know when i to even to this day uh chat with the homeschoolers in our neighborhood here in florida you know those kids are really they're bright they're really well-rounded they, they uh, have great conversations with adults, which I think a lot of young kids, you know, maybe aren't quite there yet. And uh, anyway, I, for us, homeschooling has been a really positive thing. So I, I'd say mm-hmm. 
to those of you out there who are looking to travel and have some adventure and kind of get out of the normal routine, if you can figure it out, um, you know, how to do it, uh, gosh, go for it. And your kids will, will, I think, benefit from it hugely. So that, that's my advice. That's great I advice. Think that's, yeah, that is great advice. It certainly opens up the door for so many more options. I mean, they can have a lot of experience with traveling and things that, um, I guess, traditional school might prevent somewhat. But for the kids that are in a traditional school, there is schoolyard films to help out. So, <laughs> That's nice, a very nice, nice segue. segue. I like that. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. I know um, that you're, you started schoolyard films. I think it was inspired by your kids. And I saw at the Wild and Scenic Film Fest um, your film on coral reefs that your I think your son Liam was um, the narrator of, and it was just phenomenal. So I'd love if you could talk a little about a little bit about Schoolyard Films, how and why uh, it got started, where you've come with it, and where you want to go. Sure, sure. Well, um, you're right. It really did kind of start you know, around our kids, you know, like I think a lot of folks, you know, you go, when your kids are young, you go into their classroom and, and, uh, you know, chat with, with, um, with their classmates about whatever kind of work you do at times. And, and so I, uh, you know, had always been going in and I'd show little clips of films and, you know, a single class is too, too short to show a whole film usually. So I'd show little clips and some behind the scenes slides and the kids were just, to me, it seemed they were always so completely into it and enthusiastic and everybody had a great time. And, um, so in 2008, uh, my wife, Karina and I finally thought, you know what, we really, um, could take this to another level and reach a lot more kids with what we think is a really good uh, conservation message. So, so we we jumped through the hoops. We had no idea how one creates an educational nonprofit, and we found a lawyer and got the whole thing going. And we also had no idea how to raise money to make these films. So it's been a wild learning curve, but I'm really proud of what we've done. And um, since 2008, we've um, yes, we have. I don't know, about 13 films. And we've teamed up with teachers who, uh, you know, who said, look, if you can make us a film uh, that is around 15 minutes in length, so that in a single classroom period, class period, you know, we can have time to introduce the film, chat with the kids, and then show the film. And then in the same class, before the bell rings and everybody splits to the next, next classroom, uh, still have time to then discuss, you know, what they got out of the film. And, and um, they always said that our time frame is around, you know, between 20 minutes for the film. And so we've, we've taken that to heart. And uh, I had done a lot of work on a BBC series called Wild um, leading up to that. And, and those stories were usually told by somebody on camera, not a, you know, professional um, host or presenter, um, but just somebody who's really passionate about whatever it is that they're doing. Maybe they're a scientist or maybe they're, a, you know, a lay person who just 
has this love for a specific habitat or animal or whatever the story is. And, and it's a nice way to tell a story, to let people with passion, you know, give them the space on camera to, to share what they're excited about because that excitement comes across on camera in a nice way. And so we kind of modeled our short films after that series. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we teamed up with Apple, uh, at the start, they have been just great throughout. So our, everything we do is on iTunes and their attitude is just bring it on. You know, the more content you, you can provide of the kind of stuff that you're doing, they say, you know, we, we, we love it. And That's then, great. Was, yeah, it's really, it really has been great. They've been just super and then we um, we got the same invitation from PBS a few years later. So they have a site called PBS Learning Media, which is for teachers, and and uh, I think they have I think it's over 4.2 million teachers are registered with them, and it's all free. Everything that we do through Schoolyard is is free. Um, you know, I raised the money to make the films, and we make three study guides per film. So. Those are there to help teachers present the concepts in our films, and ones for high school teachers, ones for middle school teachers, ones for elementary school teachers, and and so through PBS and Apple, we we put it all out there. And honestly, our biggest challenge is, you know, I mean, we're always we're always raising funds to make the next film, and 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 we're doing fine with that. I'd always, you know, like like more, but we're. We're doing okay. Um, I think really our biggest challenge is just spreading the word that we exist and that we have these, you know, what I think are really lovely, intelligent uh, conservation films, uh, and they're all for free to teachers, but how do we let teachers across the country know, you know, know that we exist and how to find us? And so, you know, we've, we've been trying to tackle that that challenge for all these years and last year we we had just under a half a million viewers um we think and and so we're doing well um but i know do better and better better and at some point i'm just waiting for us to hit that tipping point and for schoolyard films to become you know a well-known name amongst uh through 12 teachers in in this country and Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm blathering on a bit, but I'll just add one last thing, and that we're we're trying to open up an office in Europe uh, with the same kind of model, uh, and they would, you know, fundraise their films. They would make their films in Spanish. This would be in Spain, um, and we would share our libraries. So everything that we've already done would go over there, and uh, we would translate. We, you know, sort of cross cultural environmental films and if it works amazing then there's no reason why we can't do it in a number of other countries and uh my my end end goal in this whole thing is in another five years or so get into schools in china and Mm -hmm. and uh you know have offices around um sort of dotting the globe uh and share resources uh but each office you know uh, makes their films sort of specifically for the needs of their school system. I mean, we have bars 
based on U.S. you know national and state science standards. Um, not that they're based on them, but we bring those into our study guides to help teachers present them. And and so in Europe, you know, they they would have certain needs to fulfill, and in other countries too. But it's all very doable, and I'd like to think that we'll have schoolyard films um, in many different languages, many different regions, all uh, giving kids solid uh, environmental education because honestly the world needs that and yes and so uh it's really fun i i love the tv work but i really really love what we're doing in the nonprofit world too and so we're just trying to figure out how to reach more people well that's uh that's an amazing story tom and i mean i can just i can tell the passion like that's that's the same passion that drives us with adventure science uh we've we've got other jobs that you know pay the bills for the most part sure. but adventure science is really the way that we give back and schoolyard films definitely sounds like that vehicle for you and i'm listening to this yeah. going all right chanel and i just need to figure out a way to develop some kind of partnership with you guys because you know <laughs> the the places that we go the things that we see the people that we meet uh absolutely incredible and the educational potential there is tremendous i mean we typically yeah. write our reports for uh, a higher level audience but I mean, I can't tell you how many talks I've given to K1 through 8, uh, high school level, and, uh, you know, even university. So there is a thirst and a hunger um, for these kind of more experiential forms of learning. And just with the way that we've been able to film uh, remote regions, go in ultralight, you know, like GoPro has just changed yeah. the game. We filmed an episode of Boundless pretty much using, and this was in Scotland, no road access. It was a 100-kilometer uh, route of 25 uh, mountains, uh, 24 mountains there, uh, starting below Ben Nevis, ending with Ben Nevis, which is the highest peak in the, uh, the British Isles. Uh, worst weather I've ever been outside in. And we filmed it using primarily, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it was brutal, with sideways wow. wind, uh, using GoPros and waterproof, um, the, you know, cameras like a, a consumable, a consumer camera yeah. that probably costs three to four hundred bucks. We shot a full episode on that, and you know, we were able to capture the feel and 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 the authenticity. And it was a great episode. Yeah, That's, that is really cool. Really turned out cool. to be well, one of our our best because it was just so raw and brutal. And you know, the viewers like, okay, these guys are suffering. This is the real deal. You know, they're not shooting from helicopters today. Right. Uh, oh, I mean, you would appreciate it. I'm not going to get into it. We can talk about it offline. But, uh, you know, it's just a, it's so exciting for, for Chanel and I to hear these stories of people doing the same things in a different way. And yeah. I, I love it. So we definitely have to talk offline about this. That and sounds great. So yeah. expand really, the reach. Really great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's amazing, too, as you said, really, as you point out, that, you know, it's great to have high-end cameras, but... If you have a good story, it almost doesn't matter what camera you you shoot it on. You can, you know, the way technology's marched along, there are some fabulous cameras, as you say, for three, four hundred bucks, and and so it doesn't have to be hugely expensive anymore. And and uh, if your storytelling is good and you've got a good story, that's uh, that's the the main part of the game, I think. So true. And, you know, I guess that's a good uh, lesson for aspiring cinematographers uh, of any age. You don't need to go and buy yourself a red camera outfit and get out and start shooting. Um, you know, buy your GoPro, 
take whatever camera you have and it's yeah. story 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 i had a meeting uh, several months ago with the red bull crew and we were talking about you know the next big thing and and how to share it with the global um, consumer base and with me were a number of uh, cinematographers more in the action adventure space but the strongest message that came out of there was tell a great story. It doesn't matter whether you're following a slug eating a leaf or you're watching the world's greatest stunt rider uh, rip through an extreme trail in the jungles of Brazil. If there is a story there, people will love it. And, you know, it really, yeah, to, to shoot it on the, the top cameras and lenses, sure, it makes it more beautiful. But story is everything. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah that's that, true. So it was interesting to hear that from Red Bull. But, you know, we're we're deviating a little bit, I guess. You know, we, we've talked about how you've got into uh, photography and cinematography. We've talked about your science background, uh, you know, your great work with schoolyard films. Let's talk a little bit more about adventure. So, uh, you know, uh, we want to learn and, and hear about some of your favorite adventure stories, close calls and the likes. But I love knowing about uh, the mantras that drive these exceptional individuals that Chanel and I have the pleasure of interviewing. What's your mantra? Not to put you on the spot, which I obviously just did. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I just have a mantra, but I will, I'll give you a couple of things. One is that I start off uh, most mornings of the week when I'm, when I'm not working. So when I'm at home, I'm up at five and I'm in the pool at five thirty. Uh, and for me, starting off the day in the water for an hour is, is just the best way for me. Well, one to stay in shape because the work is really physical and equipment's heavy and, and so it's good to be in shape. And if I'm working in the water, you know, you just, you have to feel strong in the water. So, so that's crucial for me. But I, I will say this is hearkening back a lot of years. But when I was doing the most amount of dolphin work that I did, which was, you know, probably in the late 80s through through the 90s, uh, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and go meditate and do breathing exercises. And I was working on my because so many of those shoots were all, you know, free diving shoots. And I have to say that I felt probably the best I've ever felt when I built that routine into my mornings. And I would, would just do it for 20 minutes to half an hour and then, you know, then go back and, and have the most satisfying uh, sleep of the night for the last hour. Um, but uh, that, that, I don't know, somehow just helped with focus and and just a sense of, of well-being. Plus, it, it did help my, my free diving. And so that was a lovely, lovely way I found to start the day. And, you know, life gets busy, and I got out of that habit. And, and I once in a while think wistfully, well, I really should, should uh, build that back in again. And, and uh, so you're now inspiring me to get started tomorrow at it. <laughs> well, that's tremendous. So basically, it's a, it's a combination of Meditation and being mindful, uh, breathing, which is a big part of meditation. And then more yeah. recently, it's, uh, it's just the routine of getting in the water 
and, you know, I guess connecting with uh, your most common work environment and, and building fitness through, I presume, doing laps. But do you also do heavy carries underwater or breath holds or what do you do when you're in the pool? You know, it's all laps, but some of it um, is breath holding while you're doing the laps also, uh, which is great. And and especially if I'm leading up to to a job, I will just do more of that. You know, not breathing every third stroke, but breathing every fifth or every seventh and, and just pushing it. Uh, my last job filming humpbacks was a few years ago. And and uh, it was for what was it for? It was for the BBC's Life Stories series. And they asked if I because I'd always done it with pony bottles whenever I've worked with okay. with those those guys. And um, and so I. I I said, sure, you know, it'll be fun. And, and freediving is the kind of thing that you really do need to practice. And it was a three-week shoot. And the first week, uh, even though I was working at it in the pool beforehand, the first week was just excruciating, really hard. I just felt like I had no lung capacity. And then the second week, uh, it started feeling better. And, you know, that third week was absolutely heaven where you just feel strong uh, and capable uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's the way we should all feel always. And, and, uh, we just have to figure out how to build our routines around, around kind of keeping that, that kind of level of, of fitness, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. I remember getting in the water with you, um, on the wild dolphin project trip and you would just take off and it was like, I did not have a shot. Like there was no way <laughs> I was going to keep up with you, but I did my best and. Um, I do though want to talk about more of your adventures because I know when we spent those two weeks on the, on the, uh, Stanella, I just remember hearing some of your stories and I was like, it's just incredible. Some of the experiences you've had. Um, so if you could think back in recent memory and walk us through one of your favorite adventures work or, well, it'll most likely be work related, but, um, yeah, if you could just talk about one of your favorite memories. Sure. Well, I mean, I, the beauty of this kind of camera work is that it, it does take you, you know, all around the world, which, which is just exciting and, and fun. I love travel. Um, and I, in the late nineties had my first job up in the Arctic. Uh, and, and then I've had a number since then. And then I've had a few in, in Antarctica too. And, um, and I have to say it's just an extraordinary adventure and they're kind of unusual adventures for those of us who, you know, live not in the polar regions, which is most of us. And so to go off, uh, for weeks at a time, uh, in our case, uh, my younger brother, Jamie was my assistant and he and I lived, you know, with Inuit guides at their camps on the ice, on the flow edge. And we had agreed to eat to be kind of easy in terms of what we ate. And and uh, so we were eating the local food, which means, you know, it's a lot of of boiled seal meat and and um, a little bit of raw seal liver, which was really hard. But, you know, you kind of adapt and you do your best to to fit in and um, living that, that way was just so, so different from everything I'd known and so unusual. And it was incredibly exciting. 
And, um, and you, you know, in that case, you rely on the locals to, to honestly, to keep you alive. I mean, if, if we were set out on the ice, we wouldn't last more than a few days, I'm sure. Um, you rely on their knowledge of how the ice is working and currents. And even though you're on what seems like solid ice, you're on the, it's open ocean underneath you. And, you know, that flow edge is breaking up and, Every few days, our guides would say, okay, we need to move camp. And Jamie and I would look around and, you know, <laughs> say, why? It looks just fine. And, and sure enough, uh, we would move. And where we had been, you know, the next day or maybe two days later would just be open ocean. And, um, and so living and traveling that way, we were making a film on the ice whales. So beluga whales, narwhals and bowhead whales um it was incredibly exciting to be doing the ice diving and and all the you know the topside camera work was was just so much fun that time of year which was you know in the summer it's just always always light the sun just kind of goes around in a circle and we were like kids in the candy shop when we first started and and we would work in the water during what you know we would say the normal day hour so at high noon the sun at least was the highest so you get the best penetration of light down into the water and then all night long the sun was still up but it was lower to the horizon so every photographer you know dreams of shooting in magic hour that's when you have lovely soft light and mm -hmm. and you know where i live that only lasts for you know, half an hour or so at the end of the day. Well, there it lasts all night. And so we were just working around the clock. And suddenly after about three days, we would just drop from exhaustion uh, and get some sleep and then get up and, you know, excitedly go about doing it again. And anyway, it was an incredible adventure uh, working up there, living with the Inuit and learning, you know, learning from them, uh, so that we could do our jobs as best as we could it was it was just great fun that's incredible it's uh it's interesting to me how you know the local knowledge is just so necessary for success yeah. in these projects i mean we've we've done so many adventure science projects where you know we we kind of make uh the European or the North American mistake where it's we've got advanced technologies et cetera, and we go in there and just try and brute force it. And it doesn't always work for us. And, you know, time and time again, we're, we're reminded that, you know, the local way exists for a reason. And it's yeah. the, the reason is not ignorance or lack of education. It's, it's that that is the best, uh, process for living there and getting by day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, most of the shoots that I do, we, we always team up with, you know, with someone to help us out. Because if you go there, you know, as a kind of a foreigner, if it's not your backyard, uh, how can you possibly know, you know, the details that you would like to, in my case, capture on camera? Uh, you, you just, nobody can be that well versed. And so, uh, we always team up with local scientists or the local, you know, just the local folks, because as you say, that local knowledge is, is just key, uh, to doing your job well. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, we do that when we can, but so many of our projects take us into areas where nobody lives. Uh, for example, the Moosin Dam of Oman, we call it Beyond Roads because there's a few fishing camps down low, but once you get into the interior plateau, there's no water, there are no people. And the wow. locals, 
They don't venture up there. They're fishermen. Uh, the Singy of Madagascar, the guides, uh, the park rangers that we had on our team, they didn't want to come into the forest with us. We had to go in on our own because that is a little bit taboo. So, you know, there are all those challenges sometimes that, uh, that explorers will face. And it's always interesting to try and get as much local knowledge and assistance, but then still be prepared uh, to go it alone if you need to. Fun mm-hmm. adventures, fun adventures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. um, I mean, your adventures, I think, comprise of things that most people just would only dream of, including myself. But I know you also get into some risky situations. So in 2006, I think, you were... Um, shooting footage for sloths. I think that was for planet Earth. And I think you got a little bit injured on that trip. Would you mind telling us about it? <laughs> sure. It was actually, it was for planet Earth too. So it was much more recent. Um, okay. And uh, we were working in, uh, in Panama on a very remote island on the northern side. So on the Caribbean side of of that country and, and a, in a really beautiful place. And it's a place that is called Escuro de Veraguas and, and the, it's an island or a group of little islands. And it used to be a peninsula. Uh, and a, I think about 9,000 years ago, uh, as the sea, you know, level changed, then, uh, the peninsula became, it became an island, the, the very end of that peninsula. Uh, and so the sloths that were there at the time, they became isolated. And over the last 9,000 years or so, they have kind of shrunk in size and, um, they, they've, they've adapted to pretty much just feeding on mangrove leaves, which don't really have a, a huge amount of nutritional value. So I'm told I've never had to do it. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I believe they're about 60% smaller than their mainland cousins. And it's the only place in the world where you can find, uh, pygmy sloths. And so we went, uh, and camped there and our mission was to, you know, do our best to film, film what their lives are like. And, um, one of the things that they do, uh, that they've kind of, figured out over all this time they've adapted to is is they do have a need to swim once in a while and so they swim between the little islands and 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 points of land and and uh so we were a small crew uh and we were deep in the mangroves in kind of chest deep water uh no cameras at the time we were just looking just you know scouting and seeing where where some sloths were and and um the only danger that we knew about uh was uh there's a type of what is it it's the eyelash viper um i think mm-hmm. type of snake that lives in the trees with you know where the sloths are mm-hmm. and and so i just you know, I was looking up in the trees as we walked chest deep and really, really murky, murky water. And I wasn't thinking at all about where my feet were. And I, you know, I've been around stingrays for most of my life and haven't really ever paid too much attention to them and kind of neat animals. But, you know, I've never felt uh, that there's a danger there with them. And unfortunately, I must have walked very close to one in the murky water and spooked it. And so as it fled, I mean, I just felt this swoosh of water around my foot suddenly. 
and as it fled, it jabbed. Uh, it has a barb at the base of its tail that comes up, and it, you know, its defense mechanism is is to flee. But as it flees, it just jabs you with this thing and goes off a million miles an hour, and it's incredibly painful. And uh, and it was very frightening. I there were crocodiles uh, around that we knew of, hadn't seen, but I thought at the time that I'd been you know, attacked by a crocodile and I was as scared as I've probably ever been. You know, you pull your, your knees up to your chest and I'm treading wow. water, looking around thinking, holy smokes, you know, where is this going to come at, at me from, you know, from, from where next? And, uh. and uh, anyway, it was scary. And I got to the shore. Uh, and so no boat nearby. Well, the boat really wasn't too far away, but we'd walked, you know, we certainly were walking through the pretty thick forest, but walking in water. And um, so it only took me a minute to get to where I could stand up, but uh, that was long enough that when I tried to stand up already, my leg was was useless and I couldn't, I couldn't stand on that leg. And so I, I got dragged into the boat and, and, you know, all I was wearing was a a pair of you know jogging shorts uh and a t-shirt and and wetsuit booties so really thin you know neoprene on my feet and um well it certainly wasn't a crocodile that bit me because you know when we got on the boat i could see blood was gushing but it was a very clean very deep uh wound and it, it had to have been a, a stingray um and so and was that anyway, in your in your calf or your upper leg it was in my ankle, actually, huh. and uh, it almost, I didn't know this at the time, but it, it almost went through my leg to the other side, so the, the surgeons told me later, but, uh, you know, we were so remote, and I was in so much pain, I'd never felt such pain, uh, that I just was, you know, moaning in the, in the bottom of our boat, and we raced back to camp, and they managed to grab uh I think they grabbed me a clean T-shirt and my wallet and passport. And then we had a long haul to get to the mainland to a little uh, uh, Indian community that's not accessible. There are no roads, so it's only accessible by, by boats. And, and I started my care in a little clinic there and then got, you know, around to sort of more you know a big city and civilization as mm -hmm. we know it in a big hospital and i spent three weeks there and i had six operations on my ankle to oh my gosh to heal, to heal the wound it was a long a very long haul and you know what in over 30 years of camera work it's the only time i've ever kind of been knocked out of the game and uh, and i hope it's the only time too yeah um yeah. but uh, for the most part i have to say that what we do you know as nature photographers um, you really can make it, uh, you have to make it safe and there's always risk, but heck, there's, there's a risk just walking across the street in a busy city too. So, uh, for the most part, it's safe. And if you're going to work with animals that maybe are dangerous, oh, put on a longer lens so you don't, you know, have to be right up next to them. And, and, uh, so I don't know. I feel like I was just unlucky where I stepped that that day, and and I had a long eight month recovery to kind of ponder, ponder that in my navel <laughs> oh. before getting back to work. Oh man! 
So it was a low haul. But we then went back. Uh, Planet Earth was one of the – it was a fun series to work on. This was Planet Earth 2. And we had the time, and they came up with a little bit of extra money at the end of the day because they they will release a feature film from the TV series too. And so some money came in at the 11th hour. And so we went back there. Uh, and for me to have a chance to get on the horse that threw me was, I have to say it was really great. And when we went back to kind of my ground zero, I mean, I knew exactly where I was when Ray jabbed me. Um, it was It was interesting. And one of our guides, a Panamanian guy, super guy, He's, <laughs> this is a little bit warped, but not that he's warped, but he said, he said, look, if you see the ray, he said, do you want to kill it? And I said, no. And he thought about that. And then he said, okay. And he gave me a spear and he said, well, if you, if you see it, just tap it on its back. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Well, okay, thanks. I, I can do that." And and of course, we didn't see it. Um, but we did go into the heart of the mangroves the way we had, and the crew was great. They knew I was a little apprehensive about it, and and they put me right in the middle of the line of people traipsing through that muck. But how uh, how was it walking through the yeah. mangroves in a suit of armor? I mean, I just imagine it would really weigh you down. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I was kind of wondering what could I dress up in for protection, and uh, so I went in the same clothes I'd been in before. But I just got in the middle of the group, so you know it's that the first person, who's, right? Um, wow. But but it was great. And at the end of that shoot, I managed to get back to the clinic where I'd been first treated on the mainland, and I found the doctor, and in my fairly rudimentary Spanish, you know, sat down with him and I just had a chance to kind of thank him and, and get a sense of completion from the whole ordeal. And, and, um, so, so I'm, I'm thrilled that I did have a chance to get back there. And, and the slot sequence is a, it's a, I don't know, I'm really proud of, of what we accomplished. We had a great team. And, oh my gosh. The footage is tremendous. Yeah, I mean, it's they're, just they're, stunning. They're, neat, they're just neat animals. And, and so, it was an ordeal, but it was also tremendous fun, and I'm I'm proud of of what you know what came out of it too. Well, that's that's a story that most of us uh, hope to never repeat. But <laughs> I can tell you from many years of doing this, time in the mountains, time elsewhere, it just happens. Uh, eventually, you know, a rock um, breaks away, uh, something slips underneath your foot. Uh, there's an animal that you don't see. And, you know, those are the consequences. But to trade not doing it and missing out on those life-altering, life-affirming experiences versus having to deal with, you know, sometimes fairly severe injuries, uh, it doesn't sound like you'd want to trade it, you know? One no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I feel so fortunate that, that I've, you know, been able to have the great fun adventures that I've, that I've had and still continue to have. And that... Um, what usually comes out of it is that I get to share my adventure with, you know, millions of people in their living rooms, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and film. And I just, it's a privilege to, to, you know, it's really an honor to have a chance to do that kind of work and reach a lot of people and still have incredible adventures, you know, on a personal level that I just love right. uh, at the same time. So it's, I feel pretty fortunate, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. It's like that quote, never easy, always worth it. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Well, we are uh, rapidly uh, running out of time here, but I do have a final question that I'd uh, love for you to take a crack at. And it's just, it's kind of general sentiment, uh, maybe something a little more philosophical, but what is it about adventure and exploration that you find so important and necessary to drive you out in the field, away from family and friends, risking, uh, you know, occasional injury to, to capture this and share it with people? Well, you know, for, for me, uh, it really comes down to, uh, honestly, the, the, Kind of the state of our planet, I think, is is fairly dire in 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 some you know some aspects and environmental education um, and education sort of in terms of of the way the world works and the way everything is connected. Um, it, these are really important things, I think, to share with as many people as possible because we're doing some unhealthy things let's face it, to 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 the environment with our lifestyles and i'm i'm guilty of of it too without doubt i'm you know we're all part of this i'm, I'm equally passionate about the the you know the nonprofit stuff because i get to pick those stories myself and and we're we're really trying to pick uh things that i think young kids need to wrap their heads around um and understand so that uh, you know, when it comes their turn to kind of manage this unbelievable place where we are, uh, that they can do a better job than my generation has been doing. Yeah. Tom, I think what's so cool about you is I think you're really like a liaison. You're able to bring the natural world into people's living rooms and classrooms with such stunning imagery through your cinematography work. And you're also able to articulate um, science and the different issues of the planet and terminology that everyone can understand and relate to. And you do it all so passionately. So it's uh, really inspirational. And I just think everything you're doing is just great. What are you most excited about moving forward? Well, um, in terms of projects that are kind of looking like you know, they're almost on my plate. Uh, there are a couple, and is, I've never shot, I think every, <laughs> every photographer dreams of, you know, the next size camera and the next size format and the next biggest screen. And I've never worked on an IMAX film before. Uh, and there's a possibility that we'll have a, a 3D uh, Everglades IMAX film, uh, which I hope is getting funded this summer, that if it happens, I should land a lot of work on it. And it's you know, I, I I love the state of Florida, and we have all sorts of, of problems um, with the Everglades and sort of water issues. And and uh, anyway, I'm I'm very hopeful that over the next couple of years, I'm going to be able to really really dive into um, Everglades stories. And and so uh, that's that's what I hope is is kind of coming down the pike next for me. Very cool. Yeah, Everglades are, they're, they're definitely on my list. I know Chanel's been there. Um, I have yet to, but soon I hope. You know, it's, it's interesting. And as we wrap up here, I just, you know, producing, uh, television programming for a global audience, you don't always know what the uh, reception's going to be. And with Boundless, when we started making a show about endurance sports, we, we were really in the dark. We didn't know how it would be received. 
And the number of emails or personal encounters that I've had from people who have said, literally, Simon, I used to sit on the couch, and until I saw you and Turbo running around the world taking on these challenges, I didn't think there was anything I could do. I thought I was done. I didn't think I could become an athlete. But after watching the show, I started walking, and then I started running, and now I race. And now I've done 30 races in the past five years and lost 120 pounds. You know, that's not... That's not a singular story for me. And I can only imagine um, what you get as feedback or at least what the production team will get from making uh, these documentaries and sharing the natural world in a, in a very beautiful and compelling way and how you can initiate change. I, I've heard the same thing from vegetarians who have watched different who have watched different films about the industry and say, you know, I watched this film, stopped eating meat. You know, I'm imagine the same thing's happening with, with what you do. And that's the importance of getting these messages out there. Somebody could see the film, be blown away by it or, or overwhelmed by it and just say, I'm diving into that. That's my new life focus. So for me, that's the huge value behind all of this. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, gosh, it's such an honor to be able to reach so, so many people with this kind of work. Um, and I, I really do believe that, you know, it does touch a lot of people and it can, it can help make for change, uh, which is, which is a really great thing. Definitely. Well, Tom, all good things must come to an end and it's been definitely a, a privilege for us to uh, speak with you today. Uh, I'm grateful, uh, that you took the time, uh, and, uh, you know, it's it an amazing, uh, conversation. I'm really pretty pumped and can't wait to follow up with you on some of the ideas that I've had. Um, so thank you from both of us uh, for, for joining us today. Well, thank you both too. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you everyone for uh, listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. It was a great treat for Chanel and I to interview Tom today. We'd like to thank our sponsors again, Merrill, Farm to Feet, Sunto, Stoked Oats, Canada Satellite, Earthcast, and Smith Optics. Uh, as always, our super sound editor, Olivier Hubert-Benoit, has made this sound great. And hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in learning more about adventure science, visit us at adventurescience.com. If you'd like to learn more about Tom's organization, Schoolyard Films, or if you're a teacher who would love to have these films in your classroom, visit www.schoolyardfilms.org to learn more and to get in touch with Tom. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.